Parable titles are very interesting things. Because all the parables of Jesus have titles. The parable of the sower, widow's might, of course today the prodigal son. But none of those titles are actually given by the evangelists. When they wrote those gospels, they didn't say, now the parable of the prodigal son. Those titles grow up over time. And I think a parable title is kind of a Rorschach test. It kind of tells us much more about the people who are reading the parable than about the person who wrote the parable. And so I'd like to suggest that maybe there's another way to title the parable in the gospel today. Not that 2,000 years of Christian tradition needs any help from me, but arrogance has never stopped me before, so it shouldn't stop me now. I would call it the parable of the two squanderings. And that would be kind of awkward. The parable of the two squanderings. And I'll tell you why in a second. But it's the first reading. The gospel is the more familiar one, but the first reading, very beautifully proclaimed, I would suggest is one of the most important passages you're gonna find in the entire Bible. Because what it's telling us about is that moment when the manna, right, the magical bread from heaven, food from heaven, the thing that sustained the Israelites in their most trying times, got them through so much, that meal they could count on every morning. This is the moment when the manna dried up. And they knew where that manna came from. They knew that was a direct gift from their heavenly father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this was the day that it stopped coming. Now, it's all well and good for us to say yes, and from then on they had the milk and honey of the promised land. But what was it like on that very moment, right? Have you ever had that moment? You tip the Wheaties box over and somebody's gotten the last bit. Where is the food going to come from? And they had to decide. At that moment, they had to decide. Would the promise of the bounty of the promised land, would it really be there for them? Would their God be true to his word? Just like way back when the manna first appeared, if you remember that scene, they're hungry, right? They're, they're running out of food, they're grumbling. And God gives them the manna. And for the very first time, they have to decide, is this real? Can I trust God? If he gave it to us today, will he give it to us tomorrow? And those tomorrows came, one upon another upon another, generations even. And now this is the day they wake up and there's no manna. Why am I making such a big deal out of this? Because that's the moment when they have to decide, what does our relationship with our God really mean? What is it for us? Is it for us a source of confidence? So that when we go into this land that's strange and unfamiliar, and we now have to work it, that we will be cared for by the fruit of our hands, but with the grace of God. I'm suggesting that's the foundation for changing the title of our parable, the parable of the two squanderings. With a kind of pious morality, fine, we can wave our finger at the one son who usually gets singled out, Oh, he had this inheritance, he squandered it, he's going to get it. And then we notice, oh, the father's generous to him, that's beautiful. But I'd like to suggest that the second son squandered his inheritance as well. 
He had it there all along, but it was for him no source of peace or confidence. Now, maybe I'm going a little bit strong, but the time of the son returning and the party and all that, he doesn't pull any punches when he's talking to his father. So what did that inheritance mean for him? Because he had just as much as the other son. It wasn't for him something that he could draw upon. And I'm not talking about spending it. I'm talking about the confidence of knowing, yes, my father is here. This inheritance is just a sign of his love and his support. What does it mean to say that the faith I have, the faith we have, the St. Joseph's Parish, is that for us a genuine source of comfort and peace? And I'm not suggesting that it isn't. But the way to really challenge ourselves on that, I think, is to look at a moment like when the older son is facing this moment of tension, or for him, almost crisis. What is that inheritance that he's always had? What has that meant to him? What has that built up for him? Because in that moment, it's revealed as something very fragile. And all of a sudden, whatever the father had shared with him, it just sort of crumbles. It might never have been there. Might as well have never have been there. And I wish I could say that the faith I professed since I was a little kid, the faith that it's been an incredible privilege and honor for me to live out in my now almost 20 years of priesthood, I wish I could say that every time I was in the face of something that was for me a source of doubt or despair, I could reach back into that faith foundation as a source of confidence. And I don't simply mean, you know, on your knees, white-knuckled prayer, oh God, please let me get through this, or please take this away. I just mean the sort of confidence that we might draw from a friendship that is really deep and meaningful, or a marriage that has been sustaining, not because every day is perfect and wonderful, but trust, right? Trust, so that you wake up and you face whatever it is that's there with a confidence, confido, right? That just means you are with faith. And so how do we get there, right? It's one thing to say, boy, I, I, I wish uh, I weren't squandering my inheritance. But how do you get there? I think you get there the way I'd like to believe the older son eventually got there. Now, to Luke's great credit, he doesn't give us the rest of the story, right? There's no Paul Harvey figure here. If you're over 100, you know who that is. This idea of Luke not tying it all up with a nice bow. Oh, and they all went into the party and lived happily ever after. Because he forces us to sit with that final scene between the father and the son. But I'd like to think that it's precisely in the encounter of the older son finally getting the courage to look the father in the eye and say what maybe he's felt for a long time. Probably at least since the younger kid went off. Father, this is what's in my heart. This is what I'm feeling. Don't you care about me? Martha and Mary, that scene with Jesus. Martha starts by saying, Jesus, don't you care that I'm struggling? This is the golden moment because now maybe it took him a long time to get there. Maybe it took this crisis to bring it out. But at least this is the moment when the son can look the father in the eye and say, don't you care about me? Weren't you here with me when I was here with you? 
Because now the Father can respond. And of course, this is a parable about our relationship with God because the truth is that the Father is always responding. The Father is always there. It's our receptivity that changes. And that can be the blessing of what might otherwise be a curse. It can be the blessing of those moments when our faith is most stretched, when maybe we are angry with God, when maybe we ask ourselves, does our faith mean anything? I've got to believe there's lots of folks hunkering down in basements in Ukraine, wondering, Lord, where are you in this? And in the face of all that, the only type of prayer that really matters is the prayer where we can look our God in the eye and just say, Lord, this is who I am. This is where I am. Before we ask for help, before we express gratitude, before any of those other things, just start with brutal honesty with what's in your heart. Maybe it is gratitude, so start there. But I'm just saying, honor what you feel. Don't censor yourself like that older son for how many months or years. It's never too late, but it's certainly never too early simply to say, hey, Father, don't you know what I'm dealing with here? Not that God needs a reminder, you know, oh, yes, I forgot all about you. But rather, speaking with honesty what's in our heart is what's op what opens us up to be receptive. At that moment, the son could speak to his father. Maybe for the first time, he could begin to hear, at least, of the father's love for him that had never left. I think we know that in our human relationships. The thing which is not mentioned between two folks who love each other becomes an obstacle to their ability to really hear and receive. So maybe just a little spiritual exercise as we go into this fourth week of Lent. If there's something in your own heart that maybe you haven't brought front and center in your prayer, not just in the sense of, Lord, take care of this, but rather, Lord, do you know how I feel? Because this is the situation. That is one of the purest and most beautiful forms of prayer you can ever have. And I think we have license and freedom to pray that way because Jesus went to great lengths to construct this beautiful narrative tale. We call it the one prodigal son, but I think we're meant to pay every bit as much attention to how both of them dealt with their inheritance.